This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. You are listening to Murder Was the Case, exploring the darkest, most perverse, and bestial crimes known to man. Carrie Drobin is a criminal defense attorney and award-winning true crime author focusing on motorcycle gangs. Carrie's 2022 offering, Aurora, with Dr. Lynn Fenton, looks at the case of mass murderer James Holmes. In this episode, Carrie and I meet in the dive bar to talk about the gunman, true crime writing, and the social factors contributing to the mass murder epidemic in the USA. And more. This conversation was a delight, and I hope it tides you over until I'm able to congregate with Jason Jensen once more and get back to those Jean Benet Ramsey smash doll parts. Without further ado, here is Carrie Drobin. Welcome to Murder Was the Case, everyone. I am here with Carrie. Wow, her background is fascinating. This is one of those people, they don't just do one thing. They've, they've got like four or five things. So we'll get to that in a minute. But specifically, she's here with me to talk about her book, Aurora. Carrie, welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm anxious to get back into speaking with you because we were having a good conversation off mic. And then I, I said, well, hold on, <laughs> let's jump in. But first, we'll get back to that very quickly. But up front, this is about the shooting in the Aurora movie theater perpetrated by James Holmes. I think there was 12 fatalities as a result of that, dozens of injuries. And so we're going to talk about your book, but more generally, I see that you're a lawyer. You've written about biker gangs too, which is something that I'm getting more interested in is the organized crime actually, because I always neglected that a little bit. And I've always liked the aesthetic of biker gangs for some reason. So <laughs> let's talk about lawyer and biker gangs and maybe in a couple minutes, we'll get to Aurora. Okay. Well, I've been a criminal defense attorney for gosh, 20 years and I got into true crime writing. Actually, my introduction to true crime writing was with motorcycle gangs. I was approached to write about the undercover investigation, the ATF's infiltration of the Hells Angels. And that ultimately turned into running with the devil. And it was just kind of an interesting total serendipity of how I got into this genre, but always have loved true crime and always loved criminal pathology. And and I really became fascinated by the subculture of biker gangs, the contradictions, the fact that they want to be rebels and outlaws, and yet they're very confined and restricted with all of these rules and regulations and <laughs> codes of conduct. And I found them to be, in many ways, some of the most conforming um, no kidding. <laughs> cultures around. So it's really fascinating. And it was fascinating to be a woman, you know, from a woman's perspective, writing about a predominantly, well, it's, it's really all male gang, women are property of <laughs> bikers. And so it was a really fascinating perspective. And it kind of really launched my career in true crime. And I always joke to people that I, I write the 1% of true crime that nobody in their right mind would ever want to write about. <laughs> and like, But it gave me the opportunity really to delve deeply into that kind of mentality and what attracts people into outlaw biker gangs. And of course, the symbiotic relationship between the outlaw gangs and the mob. And so that was also really fascinating. And I'm really fascinated by undercover organizations. So on the one hand, I'm writing about the operatives that infiltrate these subcultures and then the subcultures themselves. So the two components were very 
fascinating to me. I already had three things pop into mind. I like listening to you and and, uh, and going, but I already had like Bing, and I, oh, don't forget it, Bing, Bing. So <laughs> let's dial it back a bit. So let's take it to conformist. This is an observation that I made when I was speaking with John Wright, who's a criminologist, great criminologist, and he's actually hung out with biker gangs too. He said the first thing, and not that this is conformist, but their whole thing is like, hey man, like I'm like you said, I'm an outlaw. I'm outside the system. He said, but their fundamental scam is being on disability. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you found that or you know that or not about the people that you wrote about, but he has been around all shades of gangsters from bikers to to people in the ghetto, that sort of thing. He said, all of them across the board, disability. It's like the first grift. Yeah, well, I mean, that is true. There's a lot. It's it's really interesting. They have to actually rely so much on the system, right? The very system that they are running from or professing to shun. And it's actually, you know, part and parcel of how they survive in a lot of respects. So it is a really interesting contradiction. You know, and by the same token, I got to really understand or at least study the allure that the woman had to these gangs as well. I mean, they can't be made members, but they have a sort of hierarchy within the club itself. And in the women that I spoke to, it was sort of their sense of belonging. They really understood their place. There wasn't all this confusion. They knew what role they were playing. And that was sort of what I found fascinating about the outlaws themselves. Every one of them had a role. You don't disrespect that. You understand the code. There's like this whole built-in structure that in many ways really wasn't too different from what I found in police work and military and scouting and like prisons. I mean, they're all the same sort of code of conduct. Highly structured, bureaucratic, as you said, conformist because they have to be. When you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, real independence from the system and from like, I don't need others, man, and all that, that's much more difficult. And it makes you very vulnerable psychologically and financially, even physically, like in every way, it makes you more vulnerable. So like what you're describing there with the biker lifestyle, it's the opposite of Nietzschean, right? If, if we look at Nietzschean as something like the height of existential psychological independence, if perfectly realized, they're the opposite of that. They're completely willfully tribal. I can right. get it. I get the allure of it the same way I get the allure of the police and military and such too, but it's not, hey, I'm like this lone man. Nobody pulls my strings. It's like, your strings are yanked arguably harder than people that work a nine to five. Right. Most people's bosses can't just call them in the middle of the night and say, you have to come and do this absolutely right now. No ifs, ands, or buts. And if you don't, we'll kill you. Right. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's just, they are so beholden to that structure and that system and that organization. And, and really, I mean, that's their survival. Like that's the brotherhood, you know, whether it's in the gangs or the police work or the scouts. I mean, it's that whole sense of belonging and feeling like you're almost in a way invincible or stronger mm. as a mob or together. And the real rebels, the real outliers are the ones that are you're right. I mean, they're very vulnerable. They're the anarchists. You know, I mean, you can't even have anarchy in the prisons. You really can't. There's no, no way to sort of survive in that. So that's what I found so interesting about all of that. Uh, really, every gang that I've studied, it is an organized criminal syndicate. They're the CEOs of their own organization. And if they weren't criminals, they would be corporate heads, which, you know, of course, it's debatable whether there's a distinction between them. But, you know, I mean, that's the sort of the same structure. So you also mentioned about being somebody who writes about the 1%, uh, which I got the double entendre there uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, of criminals that no one would want to write about. Is that because it's so dangerous? One of the safeties 
ironically, about writing about serial killers and sex murderers and mass murderers, which is primarily what I do, is they're not going to come out and come looking for me. Right, exactly. And I think that that's true. I may joke about it, but there is an element of truth to that because there aren't protections. I'm vulnerable in and of itself just by the fact that I'm writing about that because these are not... Um, for the most part, they're not criminals that are in prison or contained. They're doing their thing. And I am going in as a quasi-journalist, interviewing them and being the eyes. I'm invited into their inner sanctum, so to speak, and being able to report on it, but also tell the story of what it's like for you. I mean, every one of the, my books really tells it from a different angle. I take on a different gang, but they're from a different angle. And so I think it is that 1% that really, there are no rules written to it. There's no one way of writing it. There's not other corroborating research in a lot of cases. It's mm -hmm. sort of hands-on, you know, it's all interview. And I have to build a lot of trust and rapport with the people that I'm writing about because, you know, I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's like the last thing I want to do is write something that, you know, is going to come back and haunt me. So it is a very different feel to write about that. And so you're right. It's weird. I mean, as a criminal defense attorney, most of my clients are contained. They're in prison. I can go visit them. I can represent them, but I don't have to worry about them getting out. So the final question I remembered all three, good jugglingly, was you were asked to write true crime on biker gangs, but you're a criminal defense attorney. Was there some overlap there? Had you represented somebody in a biker gang? You know, the interesting thing is I actually have not represented a member of any outlaw biker gang, but I have learned that some of my books are required reading in the gang. For example, <laughs> Running with the Devil, for example, is a book that was passed around in prisons and passed around with prospects that were prospecting for the Hells Angels. So it's, it's very interesting that I learned that from my clients, that these are books that are found during raids. They're reading about themselves, about the operations. It's just a weird sort of surreal perspective of it, but it's different. I mean, it's a different sort of process. And I think I went into it very blindly and I've learned a lot in that process. You just brought back some memories of me finding out some people are reading my books in prison. There was even a news article. I was one of about five authors who wrote a coffee table book called The Crime Book. And there was an article like homicidal couple pulled over and, and arrested copy of The Crime Book found in the backseat of their car. And the police officer was there saying, we do not recommend The Crime Book. It didn't help them one little bit. And it was going, well, we didn't give them advice on how to get away right. with it. It was just <laughs> some small articles on well-known crimes. Know. But then Isn't the other people so I, I worked with were like, this is great press. I'm like, is it? It looks better than they made it out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I have the same reaction. I felt a little weird about the whole thing. But I once had one of my books. It wasn't a, a biker book. But one of my books, the defense attorney held it up and said, I guess I was giving away some of the trade secrets or the, you know, the defenses that hadn't yet been disclosed. And so it was a double homicide. And so the first person had gone to trial and the second one hadn't been tried yet. So that, you know, it's just a weird feeling to have that exposed like that. Okay. So let's put the bikers aside for now. Maybe I'll have you back on sometime and we'll speak specifically <laughs> about biker gangs. But what we're here for today is to talk about Aurora insights into mass shooters Lessons Learned. This is your book on James Holmes and his victims. As I was saying to you before you came on, I spent a lot of time on this myself. It was one of 10 cases that I did a deep qualitative study on for my dissertation. And I spent 24 hours transcribing 
his interviews with William Reed, which are on YouTube. So you're, you know this, Carrie, I think yeah. if you did it like I did, it's being played on a TV, on a courtroom, which is then recorded and put on YouTube. And the audio is awful. Yes, <laughs> it is awful. It's fascinating, but it's awful. I mean, I, I think what's really interesting about that is this massacre, the trial was public and it was public on, on purpose. And now it's, a, it's more common than that, but at the time it wasn't common. And mm. so it is kind of interesting to be able to to see him and see how he interacted with Dr. Reed and really see the bizarre mannerisms that he had throughout and the sort of affect that was almost unaware of what he had mm. done. And that to me was very chilling. I mean, it's one thing to read about it. So if I was reading it in a transcript and it was another to really just sort of see him speaking it. And there were part, I mean, I also, you know, listened to the 24 hours and, and the whole time I was thinking about it, I was like, wow, this is, this is chilling. This is just crazy to me. And that the whole premise of the book and one of the things I found particularly fascinating about writing Aurora was here's this perspective from the treating psychiatrist, which we don't have ever. The treating psychiatrist in the six weeks before the mass shooting happens and, and what was her perception and what did she know? And then what did she learn after the fact is just to be able to get inside her head and have that perspective of even from the very first meeting that she had with him, she really felt that he wasn't mentally ill, but that he was evil. And so for me, it was like this fascinating mm. hypothesis, I guess, or theory from a psychiatrist saying, I believe this person is evil. And so then you have to sort of backtrack that and say, okay, was well, this person, was he born evil? Were there signs that people saw? You know, I mean, this is definitely your wheelhouse here, but it was the first time that I've ever had to deal with that where I'm really having to analyze, are there such things as natural born killers or are they formed? And so I found that really interesting that she really had that feeling and that sense from the very first meeting that she had with him. And maybe for the listeners, I'll just describe what he was like. First of all, James Holmes was a doctoral student in the PhD neurosciences program at one of the most prestigious universities in the country. He was under the tutelage of probably the most prestigious professors in the country in the neurosciences program. So he was really, he had all eyes on him. People saw him, he was brilliant, he was intelligent, but he was referred to a social worker at the university because he had problems public speaking. And in order for him to pursue his PhD program, he had to give presentations about what he was theorizing in his experiments. And he really couldn't do it. He was breaking down. And so the professors to help him out, thought, we'll send you to a social worker. Maybe she can deal with some of your anxiety. You know, and that's how they characterize it as extreme anxiety. So you would expect somebody experiencing or exhibiting extreme anxiety to have mannerisms that exhibit that. Yeah. And he really didn't. And that was the first striking thing that mm -hmm. Dr. Fenton realized. She said I've never she thought of that, Carrie. Yeah. Thank you. That's the first, because you're right. I always took the anxiety thing for granted, but you're right. Anxiety is high strung. It's like, if it's a narcotic, it's more methy. And he's not at all. He's not at all. There wasn't any of that twitchiness or that nerves wow. or anything. There wasn't anything like that. So the social worker sees him for maybe an hour and realizes he's one of these people that she's got to keep in the system. And that, of course, is code for we need to monitor him. There's something off about him. And that's really all that people could say about him was that there was something off. And so when Dr. Fenton sees him for the first time, she describes him as somebody in her lobby that resembles a dead body. Now, that's also really striking for a psychiatrist to say, but 
you know, so he's sitting there. And what she means by that is that he's very stiff. He's sitting almost as if he's not bending like the, you know, the part where most people would sit in a chair. He's not sitting in a chair. He is like stretched out (laughs) and stiff. And, And when she calls his name to meet him for the first time, he's very robotic. He's kind of, you know, the way that he walks, the way that he moves, he's got this bug-eyed stare, nothing at all like nervousness or nervous energy. So when he's sitting across from her, he's also doesn't volunteer anything. She's trying to talk to him, trying to elicit what's going on, what the problem is. And he's monosyllabic answers, doesn't volunteer information. So that to me was very striking from the get-go. And she said that just viscerally, her reaction to him was almost like, there's this presence of evil in my office. And she didn't know what to do with that initially. That to me was pretty compelling and interesting to explore what made her conclude that and whether her feelings changed over the course of her treatment of her. That's all in your book. Yeah. Interesting. Did you get evil? Because like, look, I haven't sat in a room with the guy, but when I was watch first of all just looking at pictures of him photographs and drawing conclusions from there but then watching him in court watching the interviews i'd say that i got the opposite i got like so mentally ill that he's not legally insane but i'm not almost not really comfortable saying he's legally sane those are really what our only two options well you would know i don't know it's more or less but there's like this space in the middle where some people float and if i were to put him anywhere it's there he didn't strike me as sadistic or malicious or anything like that certainly though like completely devoid of if evil means devoid of humanness perhaps what did you think really interesting question because i was reflecting on that a lot as i was writing the book what one person's interpretation of evil is might be different from another and what i had always thought of in the past as evil you know somebody like jeffrey dahmer right i mean Mm -hmm. that you have your stereotypical monster but he was disarming in that way. And so I would agree with you in that it's not somebody that you would immediately say, hmm, sociopath, psychopath, who is this person? He certainly wasn't charming, but you're right. He was devoid of empathy. And so at least in the interviews, he was devoid of empathy. And one of the descriptions I found so chilling with him is that he really didn't see the difference between talking about broccoli and talking about killing. So he put them in the same category, in the same sentence. And is that evil? Is that somebody is evil? Someone who is devoid of that empathy? Maybe. I mean, maybe that's where you start. It's almost like trying to define pornography. You know, Mm -hmm. there's so many degrees of it. And so I think that in itself is a very compelling thesis. I think because I've had this before trying to figure out what is evil. And I think evil is somebody that takes pleasure in hurting other people or seeing other people hurt. It's not only instrumental. Well, mm, that's difficult there too, because I think an evil person will also hurt people. They don't enjoy it, but they will do it without compunction on a path to something else or even with compunction, but just not enough compunction to really stop. But I think at the worst extremes of evil is you enjoy seeing other people suffer, whether at your hand or at another. So is there shades of evil then? Would it be worse to be killed in the exact same way by someone who enjoyed watching you die or someone who just wanted your car? Uh, I think there can be different faces of evil. I don't think that there's, it's an either or. And of course, now the author escapes me. I can't believe it. Books on the new evil, right? The new evil, which literally encompasses mass shooters. 
as the new evil. And I would say that having spent so much time on this case, as I know you have, I think I would conclude that he was evil because just in the planning of it, in the methodical planning of this mass shooting, the deliberate wanting to amass human value, I guess. You know, so part of it is he wanted to do this horrific crime so that people would study his brain. So that's interesting. Secondly, he believed that he would increase his own self-worth by killing off people, right? His human capital theory, which I think is evil. <laughs> well, um, let's let's hold on. Let's stop there, though, because did he use the term self-worth? Because I remember he was something more abstract than that. It was value. I remember thinking this guy's like looking at life like a video game. Mm. You know, you kill people, they give you like a point, and then that goes to you. And I remember William Reed trying to get at this with him. And I'm sitting there watching and I'm going, a point of what, man? Like a value in toward what? So he got 12 extra values. So now he's worth 13 or something because he's one and he got 12 from yeah. the people he killed. Well, you're right. And his but, equation sort of devolved over, you know, I mean, he, he couldn't figure out like whether somehow in his own mind, children were off the charts somewhere. He really liked children and there wasn't any rhyme or reason to that, but he, he didn't want to assign points to them. You're right. I mean, his point system really didn't make a whole lot of sense. Neither did his notebook where he explores all of the different venues for his mass shooting. He rules out airports because there's too much security and he probably wouldn't escape easily. He rules out Tylenol poisoning because he can't see how many people he's going to kill. So he doesn't get that satisfaction. And he arrives at a movie theater because you have mass casualties. And his whole theory of... Um, Ultraception. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> Ultraception, right? I wouldn't say that he was you know, operating with a full deck, but I also wouldn't say that his plan was not evil. So I think that's where the whole interesting... Um, it's almost like a slippery slope comes in. How much are you going to define it and how much are there going to be gradations of it? But he had to also, though, there was self-preservation, if he's to be believed, because he was never suicidal because the very instant he was about to be suicidal, he transformed suicidal into homicidal through the ultraception process. So killing those people was like self-preservation in his system, too. Yeah, in, in his own belief system, which, <laughs> I mean, I don't know that evil has to be rational, but even his point system, right, his value point system is not valuing human life per se. It's increasing his value, whatever that means, you know? So it, yeah. the theory would be that he's trying to become human or, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm attributing too much to him, but, <laughs> but it definitely, it definitely is a compelling argument. And you're right. The prosecution didn't go there. They went for, he's not insane. And it's a completely yeah. intentional crime, but they didn't go so far as to say it was evil. Fenton, Dr. Fenton boldly comes out and says he's evil. And that's why I couldn't treat him. That's why he's incurable. That's why nothing that I tried helped, even though she knew from, she claimed she knew from the beginning that he was going to do something horrible. She believed he would do something horrible. But again, until you have the evidence to back up what you're saying, your hands are tied mm. in, on a certain, certain level. You know, she can't put a, 72 hour mental health hold on somebody unless you can prove that he's going to be an imminent threat either to himself or other people. It was really interesting to see what she knew at the time and then what he's doing on the side while he's seeing her, he's amassing an arsenal. That's very calculated and deliberate. 
and I would argue evil, um, because there's only one purpose in what he's doing, and that's to kill. And the way that he enters the movie theater and starts spraying the top row, the back row, the people that can't get out, you know, that's his kill box. I would argue that's evil. So, I mean, so it's really, it was very interesting coming at it from that perspective. I don't think it was too much of a stretch for me to try to support Dr. Fenton's theory because I do see where she derived that. And oh, yeah, I don't have a problem with it, like in the grand scale of things. You know, in most moments of my life, sure, he's evil, fine. It wasn't the first thing I went to. The first thing I went to is this guy is absolutely nuts. Yeah, because what rational person would do this, right? So. Well, it's even things too. Like the thing that actually stunned me the most was when Dr. Reed said to him, so this ultraception system you have here, is it subjective or objective? He goes, it's objective, but that's my subjective opinion. Right. And I'm like, I don't know. That just breaks the DSM. That doesn't. Right. <laughs> is that a delusion or not? <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I was fascinated by, I mean, people forgot there were two crime scenes here. The crime scene where he booby traps his apartment and rigs all these elaborate bombs, you know, that he's studied and made, you know, these napalm bombs. His whole apartment is that way to, to trap the first responders. But what I think was one of the chilling aspects of this is that he's having to explain to the bomb techs on Booby Trap his apartment. It took him four days to dismantle the bombs. I mean, that's evil, crazy evil. If it was really evil, wouldn't he tell them how to do it wrong? Wouldn't he not help them? Well, I thought of that. But the interesting part of that is this thing that he had with children. So on the one hand, he has no empathy. At least this was the conclusion. Sure. I don't think he did. And yet... He seemed to care about harming children, even though he murdered a child, you know? So there's that whole disconnect, but somewhere in his brain, he's like, I don't want to hurt children. And so maybe if the apartment blows up, I might actually wind up harming children in the middle of this explosion. So yeah, there are lots of very interesting contradictions to his whole mental play here. When he was growing up, he said that people would come up to speak with him and they would expect a response from him and he wouldn't know what to say. And so to overcome being frozen by anxiety in the moment, he would, now he didn't say hallucinate. He said like kind of picture or imagine flying buzz saws cutting off their limbs. And then that would break the tension. And then he'd be able to reply to them. Before we go further into that, I'm guessing you looked at his family and his background and his upbringing too? Yes. How did this person go into what the age of 24 was it before he committed this mass murder and, and no one noticed that he was this mentally ill? Well, that's the interesting thing about this. The important thing from Dr. Fenton's perspective is that a psychiatrist is only at the mercy of what a patient is going to reveal, right? So mm -hmm. she doesn't know really any of this background and she really is not at liberty to probe for details because of HIPAA and all the other things. So she really doesn't know this background that Holmes from the age of 10 imagined nail ghosts and buzz saws and actually fantasized about killing people. So he had this fantasy from a very young age. And so whether or not he ever really disclosed that or revealed that to anybody during those early years is, is anyone's guess. And it's not clear from the research that I did whether or not anybody knew. I mean, his mother certainly took him to therapists. And again, you have that session where, and this is the problem I think most therapists, psychiatrists face is how much is the patient actually disclosing to you? 
how truthful are they being? And Holmes held back a lot of that stuff. And so even his therapist who saw him at age 13, 14, knew nothing about these fantasies. And so the striking thing about that, Holmes had friends in college and he had a girlfriend in the neuroscience, you know, when he was a PhD student and you just got to shake your head going, how does that happen? You know, I mean, how does he have relationships if in fact these are relationships? And so that kind of calls into question, what exactly is that? And what are those friendships and acquaintances? I mean, are they acquaintances? What are they? So I don't know. I mean, the answer to your question is, I don't know. I mean, I, you, you do the research, you find out, I found out that he has a family history of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has relatives that suffered you know, schizophrenia and, and other mental disorders. And what we know from that, of course, is a lot of that is genetic, mm-hmm. but he wasn't diagnosed with that. And he certainly had a lot of psychiatrists evaluating him post the massacre. So to your point, a lot of those mental illnesses don't actually manifest or become incapacitating until the person is in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the rub of it. How do you stop this, which I don't believe you can? How do you spot this? You really can't. Um, and how does a therapist and psychiatrist who's in some sense lucky enough to have a mass shooter? as a patient, evaluate this, because let's put it out there, most mass shooters don't ever seek any type of psychological help before they commit murder. That's one of the the fallacies that you see out there now. People will say, like, only 5%, I can't remember the numbers, it's really only 5% of mass shooters are mentally ill. And it's like, no, no, only 5% of mass shooters are diagnosed with a mental illness because they are forced to get help or, or seek help. But if you have really understanding of psychology, like if you go and you shoot a group of people, you're going to qualify, even if it's just a personality disorder, you're going to qualify for some type of mental illness. That's why right. we have, you know, the concepts of it is, is to capture people that are that defective socially. Right, exactly. Unfortunately, you have to get to that level before people actually take notice. And I think that's the frustration of this epidemic now in our country of mass shooters. And it's like people want answers. They want, in fact, Holmes himself seemed to want answers in his notebook. He spent five pages asking the question, why? Broken brain. (laughs) Right. Why, why, why? And that's, that's really the question that everybody wants solved. And it's not such a simple answer. And I think it's because of all those components, you know. I think is a different answer for a lot of them. There's commonalities, but James Holmes, I found was very different than a lot of other mass shooters, because a lot of the times you can see the victims of the other mass shooters and particularly in like millennial and younger generations. And you go, oh, okay. Not even mass shooters, like the latest mass murder in Idaho. I look at it and I was like, oh, very pretty girls. Okay. Elliot Roger, Asians who you don't like, and you're going after very pretty girls. Okay. Um, you can do this with most of them. Even if it's just something like the other students, they exclude me. They don't let me in. Remember Cho would speak in those kind of, yeah, exactly. uh, and, and I, I think people that didn't want to make the effort would say like, oh, it's, it's just gibberish. It's like, no, deceitful charlatans. What this all means is they don't let him fit in. And he doesn't understand that it's him because he's mentally ill right? He's so strange. He doesn't understand that a big part of the reason he's an outcast and maybe not all of it, but a big part of it is because he's so strange. And so he just 
projects onto them, well, they're these horrible people. But with James Holmes, that doesn't happen. They could be anyone. He selected to go to a show where there wouldn't be kids. Other than that, it could be anyone. Gender, male, female, whatever, any race, any age beyond that point. I don't think he was even interested in his victims. You're right. That is the really fascinating part of this is the methodical planning of this was to find the perfect venue. It wasn't about the victims. It was how can I affect the most damage in a short period of time? And so that's the creepy part. And you're right. It's, they, they looked at all the things. I mean, was he bullied? Was it rage? Was it he had been an outcast by somebody? Was it mental illness? I mean, they look at all the prongs that you can check off for a lot of mass shooters, and he doesn't fit that profile. And at the time of this shooting, he was unique in that he was the only mass shooter to have deliberately survived his shooting so that people could study him. And so that in and of itself, I mean, what is that? Is that narcissism? Is it, you know, he's confused about his brain. He wants people to study him. To what end, right? Like uh, study him because what he thinks he's fascinating or he wants them to solve the puzzle of him because he's sick of thinking about it himself. Right. I mean, it's just really an interesting and strange motive, if you will, or intention, but you're right. There isn't. And that's, that's probably one of the fascinations and the frustrations of this case Mm -hmm. study, because there isn't something to put your hooks in. It's not like Columbine, you know, where you've got the no. bullied and wanting to go after, you know, people, you know. I, Columbine just, was obvious. You know, yeah. I was in school when Columbine happened. I was in high school and I went, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, right? it does make sense. But with the right. James Holmes, it's anomalous among the anomaly of mass shooting. And that's why this book of yours, Aurora, I can't wait to read it. How deep do you go into this? Because there's no way you can get to it all. He was one of the ones I had to walk away from because I was doing 10 studies. It's like I give all year to just trying to explain this guy and going on every avenue, but I don't think it's really worth it anymore. <laughs> so I, I walked away. I spent a lot of time researching this, I guess, from the perspective of trying to answer two questions and not answering them because there isn't a way to answer them. But the first question is why? Because everybody wants to know why. Second question is, is it possible to prevent this? Can you spot a mass shooter and do something about it in the future? And that's what everybody wants to know. Like, What can we do? What steps can we take? And the sad thing is you're never going to be able to spot it. Every one of these is, is unique and, and different. But the common denominator that I found, and the book really goes into a lot of different mass shooting studies, what other commonalities? And the thing that I find fascinating is many, if not most, have some form of writing. They do something where they're broadcasting, memorializing, wanting credit for something, and they write it down. They either write it in a social media post, they write it in a notebook, they keep a journal. In Cho's case, he wrote uh, plays in English essays and poems. And so there is something that they're broadcasting, right? But even that can be a slippery slope because, and, and I'll use Cho as an example. I mean, the Virginia Chuck shooter. Are we going to answer Richard McBeef? Is that where we're going? Yes, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Cho, you know, he writes these like horribly offensive plays and poems, but he's in a creative writing class. And so... After the fact, they interview the poet, Nikki Giovanni, this is a famous poet, and his professor's playwriting professor, and, and they say the same thing. They're very horribly disturbed by this, but what can they do? Is it art? Is it deviance? Is it evil? What is it? So they can't do anything about it. You know, they try to separate him out from the other classmates. So that was a fascinating case. And the thing that I found so interesting about that is, I think it was either 
at that time or since that time, they stopped having a personal essay. So when college applicants are applying, they stopped writing their personal essay. And had they forced people to write about themselves, maybe they would have found something out, you know? Holmes, for example, had to write a personal essay, had to write something about himself. And he was pretty peculiar. I mean, he got rejected by eight of the nine graduate schools he applied to because he was disturbing. <laughs> so mm. these are the clues. They're not obvious necessarily. They're not going to jump out at people, but they're there. Even in the Idaho murders, you know, I, I just recently was listening to a broadcast where friends of his, right? So all these guys have a friends, acquaintances, people that are so shocked when this happens, right? But even friends of his will say to the reporters, you know, I wish I had paid attention to the signs, implying that the signs were there, but mm -hmm. they didn't feel like they could go that extra step and say, hey, maybe something's a little weird about this. Maybe we should take a closer look because people are inhibited coming out to say, I don't think you're quite right. There's something going on here, you know, but you're right. In Holmes' case, his professors did see something strange and they did refer him. So they did everything right in his case, but they still couldn't stop him. And P.S., the infamous notebook where Holmes really divulges his plan. It's not even revealed or sent to Dr. Fenton until the night of the massacre. Mm. So the dissertation I've been telling you about is all about communications from murderers and why they do it. And it's like 500 pages of dense research. So it's online. You should check it out. If this is a topic that interests you, yeah. you really have to do that. So I looked at Cho, I looked at Holmes, and I looked at Elliot Roger among the, the mass murderers. I've thought about this a lot. And I think it's the atomization of society. We are increasingly becoming like less cohesive and less connected in any real sense, like not virtually, because you know that's a terrible surrogate. That's arguably part of the problem, right? But you'll hear like, okay, well, he was a good boy. He didn't get in trouble at school. He'd just come home from school and he'd sit in his room and play video games. It's like, and what else? Well, he'd just sit in his room and play video games. Okay. So he'd go to school. Did he talk to him at school? No. Okay. Then he went home. He sat in a room and played video games. Yes. Okay. And you didn't think there was a problem with that. I think if we go back to a tribal model of society, I'm not saying we should go back. I'm saying conceptually, if we go back, that doesn't happen. If the person's that broken that they simply can't socialize or do anything, they're not going to survive. They're somehow going to be weeded out. But if there's someone who's off course, that's spotted very early and we get them and we put them on course. And maybe they're never quite the same because there's something psychologically off with them, but we make them functional. We give them a role and they feel like they're a part of something. And the minute they aren't, there's eyes on them all the time. And there's probably eyes watching them all the time anyway. It's the atomization and the anonymity of the society that we live in, which is the key factor in why these shootings happen. That's what I'm going to put forth. I love that idea. I mean, I think that's, I think there's a lot of uh, evidence that that is the case, especially when you look at millennials, for example, moving away from any type of social connection. I mean, the social connection is on social media. People are not having conversations anymore. They're not connecting anymore in a way that makes humans connected before, right? They're connecting in a very superficial, detached way. So you're right. I think that people are not as in tune with the norm, like what is normal. And now we're in a, in a society, oh my God, where everything, everything is normal. You know, everything's okay. So there's not a barometer anymore on, on a moral compass or on how people are supposed to act. Everything's acceptable and everything's okay. And so nobody's paying attention. 
And I think that's the real rub of it. You know, if people were really paying attention, like you said, looking at people, things, looking at, you know, are they detached? I think that's where it starts. And I think people need to have the courage to be able to speak up and say, something's not right here. You know, mm-hmm. we have to take a closer look and not be so inhibited and afraid that they're doing the wrong thing. What if they're wrong? You know, <laughs> I mean, what if they're right? That's right. the thing. What if they're right? But I think that like what they are is, is the worst case scenario of a problem that we are all experiencing in some way or the other, whether it's terrible neurosis, anxiety, or depression, or both, or just a feeling of, of total estrangement, or that life has no meaning. I think that so many people now, even if they're not engulfed by it, it's stronger in their lives than ever. It's not like I, I say, well, we just need to change society, man. Like I know that that's really difficult, but we could at least look at it and go, no, really, this is a problem. We could at least start talking about like how we should change society instead of going like, oh, you're overreacting or it's really not that bad. Because the longer it keeps going, the clearer it seems to me that things aren't okay. Right. I really agree with that. I call it going into the lava. <laughs> nobody, mm. nobody wants to do that deep dive and go into the lava and maybe get burned to really analyze what's wrong. Instead, it's all surfacy. We're like a fast food society. Everything is fast quick fix, connections are very quick. And that's the irony to me is that there really isn't a sense of belonging anymore. And yet that's what I think everyone craves. They all want to find that place, their tribe, their people, and yet they're not willing to take that next step to go a little bit deeper. And so I think that's a really interesting study that you're doing. I just think we're all living in it, right? Where I am, I was just having this conversation the other, did you uh, do an interview with Jared Bradley? Because he yeah. mentioned someone who wrote on, I thought it was would be you. So I was having a very similar conversation with him on his show about this and just saying like, I'm almost tempted sometimes to just get rid of the internet. <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible to get rid of the internet. And I, I miss things like, uh, do you remember people used to listen to music? Not yeah. like have it playing in the background right. or not have it on their iPod so they could tune out other people, but just sit down and like put on a CD. I won't even go to vinyl, but you put a CD in and you go check out this new album. You just sit there and cool, cool, cool. You just give yourself the time to do that. Or um, when was the last time somebody had a campfire? Not even on like an expedition or something, but just go outside and make a fire and sit around with some friends and talk and don't have smartphones out. Where this happened, where the real problem started was two things, social media and smartphones. And when those two things combined, then the internet was at people's, at their reach all the time. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it seems like, I mean, how many times have you gone to a restaurant and you look at the people actually, you know, the couples eating and they're on their phones, mm-hmm. like nobody's connecting anymore. And I think that that is a huge problem. And, and I find it, I always find it so interesting that one of the ways that they will <laughs> treat at-risk kids or people in recovery is they'll have them go on retreats in retreats into the wilderness. And so the wilderness retreats, they don't have their phone. They don't have anything. They're doing exactly what you're describing, which is sitting around campfires and having storytelling and oral communication and, and they're healing, right? They're recovering. And it's just amazing to me that that has to be the treatment or the medicine versus the norm to fix the problem. But it is quite a fascinating and daunting world that we live in right now. But I think that's a really compelling theory that you have that mass shootings, they're the result of what's going on. And they are the reason, right? They are the why. So people are asking why, 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 maybe looking around at themselves and what kind of culture are we creating? What kind of 
you know, yeah. world are we living in that this is becoming our epidemic? It's not an epidemic internationally. This is an American epidemic. <laughs> I'm not one of these people that wants to ban guns or really wants to blame it on guns, but I think that some of the unique American aspects of it are the access to guns, but it's not necessarily where you should start as a solution. So many people own guns and don't do this, right? Right. And there's other countries where there's high gun ownership and it doesn't happen too. But I think what it allows in the United States is that someone who is like that and is at the brink and mentally ill can very quickly obtain one and then kill a large number of people. It's really the numbers, I think, yeah. that is uniquely American. But you're seeing more vehicular stuff now too, right? Like in Canada, they had the Alec Manassian where he drove into, that was on my friend's street, actually, plowed into all those people. He killed like 10 people, was it? Wounded 16 others. And you hear about them less, but people who set arsons, that's also very dangerous. So it's you can't just put it on the guns. The guns are a factor, but there's other ways to kill people. I'm trying to think of Elliot Roger. Elliot Roger killed a number of people with this car also. That's becoming more of a thing. That Christmas parade, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. you can swap out the weapons and the will will find another one. I don't think that that's the problem. I think mm -hmm. that's what's happening, right? That's the mechanism, but it's not the problem. The problem is much more systemic and much more complicated. And I think it is what you're saying, which is this whole breakdown in human connection, the value, literally the value of human beings and the sense of being a part of a community is people are very detached and they're very angry and they're very like just kind of flailing and they're taking that out. And, 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 you know, when you were talking about Canada, it reminded me a little bit of a, um, you know, we're like a virus, right? It's like, it's starting to spread. What's ever happening in America is starting to spread elsewhere for some of the same reasons that you're describing, which is social media, the internet, the phones. Mm -hmm. thing. I mean, this is a, a worldwide thing now. Why would it just stop in America? America is my favorite country, actually. I love America. I do very well there. But one thing I have certainly noticed is if you go over to Europe, there is certainly more of a sense of community in Europe. Now, it's not as natural as it should be. But like, for instance, when I'm in the UK, I notice there's children playing outside more. You see just a sense of, I don't think it's national identity or something, but in Europe, they seem to care a little bit more about cohesion, maybe because they don't have that individual spirit, but that seems too easy of an answer too. There's more to it there as well, but there's something going on there also. And then I'm thinking though, too, like there's other countries, like there's a lot of aberrant murders in Russia too. And would we say the same about them? Well, I don't know. I mean, Russia has its own problems, yeah. its own history of things. But I mean, I think that to your point about the difference, maybe the difference between some of the European cultures and America is that France, for example, and a lot of the other, you know, Italy, other European countries, they'll have siesta time, they'll have yeah. big meals where, you know, families actually sit down, they eat together, they start talking about their day. There's definitely that. There's also this whole idea of like, we Americans particularly will identify so much with their career and yeah. what they are rather than who yeah. they are. Yeah. And in Europe, that's not so much the case. You know, there are many of them, I mean, they might have a menial labor job, but they're incredibly intellectual and well-read. And so, you know, they don't identify necessarily as that's who they are. So I think there's definitely differences there that, that yeah. probably that. Yeah. There's this obsessive sense of becoming in America. You never find the way you are. You're always on your way to something else. Once I get this in place and I get this, then I'll get here. There's never things are fine the way they are. Right. There's no present. And so what does that do? Well, it's not good for mental calmness. Or clarity. Right. There's nothing meditative about that. How do you deal with it? You 
prescribe medications. Basically, everyone I meet in the state is on some kind of medication, like psychiatric medication. And it's like, I don't know if you need to be on that, really. I mean, maybe you are depressed, but do you really need to be on medication because you're depressed? I'm depressed. I'm not on medication for it. Maybe the medicine is the outdoors, you know, maybe it's reconnected. I mean, I, I mean, I agree. I think there's so much disconnection. It's so destabilizing and there's so much escapism too. And I've often said that, like, my God, where are people escaping? Why is there so much escapism? You know, why do they hate their life so much that they need to be in an altered state, for example? Yeah. I mean, that's also very American, if you want to say, I mean, you don't find that the same level in other countries. So there is something to be said about looking homebound, what's going on here, you know? So it's not so, I think it's too easy to put it on, oh, we need more mental health. Uh, We need more gun control. Mm -hmm. I think those are really easy. I mean, not easy, but it's, it's a way to shove off the real issue or the real problem is to put the focus on something else that maybe can be handled in a very quick, easy fix. But It's not. It's missing the point, in my opinion. Well, I informed myself and then I voted for someone, so they'll do something about it. (laughs) You know, they'll build this, they'll defund that, and they promote this, and then everything's going to be okay. And it's like, meanwhile, there's your two kids sitting there. When was the last time you really... Even things like family dinner time, they're good building blocks, but they can't also always be seen as a chore either. I think inevitably they're going to be somewhat of that, but there has to be some like real enjoyment of it too. And so then the question would be, well, why isn't there a real enjoyment of people being with their families? And I wonder about things like cultural messaging. It's interesting the way that getting away from your family, leaving your family is considered to be like cool or at the very least what you should do. And being close to your family is like you're needy or dependent or you're malformed somehow, you're parasitic. It's odd because other countries aren't like that. I know. It's really odd. It's very distorted, I think. Very distorted. I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, you were talking about the whole overprogramming, particularly with kids, overprogramming them to the point where they can't even be kids. They can't just have any downtime. Mm-hmm. Is downtime would be bad, you know? <laughs> Downtime's idle. So you see these parents, I mean, and I was guilty of this too, you know, years ago, just overprogramming the kids, making sure that they're doing something every minute of the day so that by the time dinner time arrives or whatever, nobody's in the same place at the same time. And I've heard this many times is that the dinner time has been replaced by the chauffeuring, you know? Mm-hmm. So you've got the captive audience in the car on the way to the soccer game or the dance practice, whatever it is. That's where the dinner conversation is happening. I think because the parent's life is overstructured, so they don't know how to handle psychologically, like what to do about the kid. And generally it just becomes the same ideas. Well, I stay on track because I do all of this stuff constantly. And so I'll make sure that my kid does as well. And the wonderful thing is the answer is everyone should relax, like nine to five, give people more time off, generally calm down. You got to realize that this is probably about as good as it's going to get. And so wouldn't that be great if people would just try that? (laughs) Just try Uh, that. I think there's a couple of things. There's a sense that things are always falling apart. There's this impending sense of doom. And if you don't stay on top of it, you take your eye off it, everything won't be okay. And right. maybe there's reasons for that. So why would that be? But also this egocentrism of having to constantly achieve something all the time. 
And I don't know how you feel, like as an author, this, this will get a little personal here, but you feel that sometimes like when you're a little girl and you're thinking one day I'll write a book, that'll be my crowning achievement. And then you write it and people are like, hey, cool, you wrote a book. And they come to your book launch and then you sell a few and you watch it on Amazon or whatever. You go in the bookstore, you see it on the shelf. And then all of a sudden it's like, you didn't do anything. It's like, when's the next book? And then you write another one. And then there's this sense of like, I thought this counted for something, but there's this incredible sense of dissatisfaction. Yes. I always have to heighten it up. There always has to be something else that's coming around the pike. Mm. I mean, you hear it all the time. Don't rest on your laurels. You know, (laughs) like you may have achieved something, but people have short memories. They're going to forget it. Mm. Well, there you go. Why this psychotic need to be remembered? Now are we getting to the celebrity culture? Are we getting to the media now? I think we are. I don't think people used to care about being remembered quite this. Yeah, this whole like sense of of immortality or sense of leaving a legacy or sense of like, I mean, it kind of goes back to what you're saying. You can't just be. It's not okay to just be in the space. You have to contribute and you can't just contribute by breathing. You have to contribute by excelling or maybe overachieving, upping the ante each and every time. That's a problem. I'm sure that contributes to a lot of this, I'm never okay, or you're never okay. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's that kind of thing. And, you know, and, and it's interesting, I was thinking about, you know, something else that comes up with all of these like horrible crimes is the ripple effect. It's like, it never just really ends. And so everything is kind of contributing to the next thing. It's layering. And to the point eventually where people become desensitized. It becomes, I hate to say, like, it's almost normalizing the insane. That's what's happening. We have so many mass shootings that they're actually getting lost in Mm. the conversation. And they're devolving into these, you know, it's like the parade of horribles. Aurora came out on the 10-year anniversary. But since Aurora, oh my God, how many more mass shootings have we had? But the branding isn't as good. And I'm sort of talking tongue-in-cheek here, but I'm also not. I started to notice that the murderers were becoming less memorable. So a racist walks into a Walmart and shoots a number of Mexicans. It's like seeing that. Let's take a look at the manifesto, cut and paste, no insights. Okay, to give the devil his due, at least James Holmes was interesting. I'm not saying, and therefore the crimes are justified or okay. That's not what I'm saying. But in the terms of like consuming this, you kind of look at it and you go, well, I haven't seen that before. That's odd. There's something to think about there. When so many, you're just like, okay, I've seen this kid before. Didn't I see him last week? Yeah. So you wonder, is it being broadcast more? Are there more of them? It's like an assault of the senses. And so I think with what happens with this is that the communities that absorb this, it actually expands beyond the community. So you have the communities of Aurora, right? That's absorbed all of this pain and this horror, and they're never, ever going to forget this. And the survivors are never going to forget this. But then you have the next one that comes up. It's like waves, waves on the ocean. Same thing. You know, the next one comes and then you're waiting for the tsunami. And then, Mm -hmm. and so I think it's actually causing people to be less reactionary, less horrified, less willing to actually dig down into the root of the problem, which is what you're describing. If the easy fixes aren't there to bring it back to the book for a minute. I mean, that's really what happened to Dr. Fenton. Everybody wanted to put the blame on Dr. Fenton. It's her fault. You know, she's the one that caused this to happen. She didn't do X, Y, Z. And that's why James Holmes went off the rails and did what he did. And of course, that's not true, right? It's not the case, but that's what they needed or the public wanted at the time. So let's just put a Band-Aid on it. 
she's the one to walk away. (laughs) The whole reason to write this book was to sort of upend that whole theory and say, no, this is what actually happened. Take a closer look. But now we've got like layer on layer of mass shootings and it becomes this horrific, desensitized in a lot of really crazy ways is a really awful analogy, but isn't that exactly what James Holmes was doing? He looked at his kill box, right? His yes, yes, point yes. system. And they didn't mean anything to him. It's like just one more thing that he had lived with his whole life. So I think there's a lot of really scary stuff going on there. A lot of danger if people don't take a closer look. I've joked about this before where I've said it's almost like, you know, an arcade game when you go in and you see who's got the high score and you see the three initials and someone below him. So I guess it's SCP now, which Stephen Craig Paddock. And then I think it's still Omar Mateen underneath. And as it show then SHC song, you show, and you just think of like numbers, right? Measuring it like James Holmes, like we can measure the amount that it matters by the number beside it. So if somebody kills four people, Although the Idaho thing arguably is a counter argument to this. It's a different case, right? Because there was a knife and he got away. But um, it's like four people, no big deal. It's not newsworthy. You've got to get into double digits for us to start caring. And did you speak to any family members of victims of this? The victims and the, well, yeah, the survivors of it. I profiled them in the book because I really wanted to talk about exactly the opposite of what we're talking about, which is how do you keep Mm. this alive and how do you live with it? And so this was a unique case in that the first responders became the ones that transported a lot of the victims and survivors to the hospitals. And so they were traumatized firsthand by what was going on. And that's not something we've seen in a lot of these other mass shootings. So I wanted to capture their story in addition to Holmes and Dr. Fenton's story. Mm -hmm. So it really profiled that because I think if we don't do that, if we don't really look at it from how it impacts their lives, it becomes exactly what we're talking about, like a video game. These are just numbers and they don't mean anything. And I know there was a big campaign in this country to like not name the killer. Let's not name the killer so that people forget who the killer is. I actually think that we should remember. We should remember the killer and we should remember the victims because that's the only way people are going to have that horror up close and personal. And it's not going to be sort of us sitting back on our living room couches and watching the horror fest on television and having that detachment and distance. If it's Mm. in your face and it's horrifying, maybe we do something about it or try to do something about it. I think one of the issues with the victim thing is when you get close to the perpetrator, maybe sometimes you feel a little bit of compassion, like, oh, you know, that's a shame that he dealt with that mental illness and then X, Y, and Z happened to him. But uh, getting close to the family, it's almost like just walking on eggshells, even if you have good intentions, right? You don't want to cause more pain. You certainly won't want to be looked at as a monstrous person, but it's the most difficult thing to explore because it's so volatile. It's really tough. It was very tough in this book too. It was a conscious decision to do that, but it was really tough. And I think that it makes it hard to read too, because you know you want to honor them. And I think that's what the judge was trying to do in this case too. That's mm-hmm. why he made it a public trial. He really wanted to honor them. And even though Holmes didn't get the death penalty, the judge made an interesting point. He said, you know, by having a trial, by Holmes not pleading, we at least can honor the victims. We can at least put them up there and let them make statements and talk about the people that he murdered so that they're not forgotten. 
And I think that was kind of a unique thing because we don't we don't see that very often in these cases. We see them as the victims and we don't get to humanize them. I think it is interesting. I mean, even in the, not that these are similar, but in the Idaho case where you have four, we're getting to know the victims pretty well. And I think that's interesting. It's shifting a little bit. What is your philosophy on true crime as far as the use of description? Because when I was writing my first couple of books, I was talking about things like graphic murders and rapes and stuff. And I I didn't always do this, but I, I had this sense of it should be uncomfortable to read. Like if you're reading about a rape or a murder and you're just, oh yeah, taking in the, the details and you don't have a visceral response to it. I think it's worse to write it and not elicit a visceral response, but I can see an argument for both ways. I had a visceral response. <laughs> I'm like, I had a tough time writing Aurora because I felt like I was, I mean, I'm a pretty descriptive graphic writer. That's just how I write. And I think I had a lot of trouble writing the actual slaughter scene because on the one hand, I didn't want to sugarcoat it. I didn't want it to make it less horrific than it actually was. So I had to make a conscious decision as a writer of it. You know, my whole point in writing it was to make this front row center so people wouldn't forget. So these graphic images would stay in people's minds. And so I made that decision as a writer. And so the book is difficult, I think. It's difficult to read because of the graphic nature. And I think if I had done it any differently, I don't know that I would have really captured the horror that went on in that movie theater. But I know what you're saying. Like, I think it's a delicate balance. And I think with each book that I write, it's a conscious choice on how I'm going to approach it. And this one seemed to scream, tell it as realistic as you possibly can, because you want to honor the victims. In a crazy way as that sounds, I felt like if I didn't do that, I was going to be doing them a disservice. We, I think are so used to seeing guns on television that we tend to think like a, a shooting or something is is less bad. Like if you're killed with a knife, that's savage yeah. butchery, but if you're killed with a gun, then it's bad, but you got shot. At least you weren't clubbed or something like that. And I think we don't give enough thought to like what that actually is like. Tearing through and and the sound and the like feeling it, the heat of it, the impact and the sense of maybe things that worked a second ago don't work now and confusion, particularly in this case, because they're watching the third Batman movie in the trilogy. And suddenly the theater fills up with smoke. What would you think? A lot of people right? thought it was a prank. That's what I would think. Yeah. A prank or some special effect. Very surreal experience. And I think that the horror of that is all of us have been to the movies. So we can actually envision and imagine what that's like. And I know for myself, I used to always sit in the back row. That was like my spot, you know? So, I mean, for me writing, I thought, oh my God, you know, that was the kill box. So every time I go to a movie now, I think about that. I actually sit in aisles now and I sit closest to the exit and I really pay attention to my surroundings. So it's changed the way that I go to movies when I go to movies. For a while, I didn't even go to movies. But I think that's part of the horror of this is that we can all relate. We can all identify how vulnerable those victims must have felt. And so you're right. It's one thing to write it and say, oh, we just, you know, sprayed bullets through the movie theater. It's another thing to actually take the time to describe the people that he shot, the people that got away and the people that 
didn't survive? Who were they? And honor who they were. And I think that's really the whole point of the book. So it wasn't to sensationalize him or go into who he was, even though he's a fascinating character too. Mm -hmm. It was really, let's tell the story of the other people in this and see how that goes. Yeah. Sometimes I think people have a difficult time understanding that someone can be fascinating and still thoroughly contemptible, right? Uh, it's like, well, if you're interested in them, then then you must think they're good. And I don't know how people arrive at that conclusion. It's probably a lot of how they view serial killers. I mean, people are fascinated, for example, by Ted Bundy, even though he's a, you know, a, a really horrific, contemptible killer. And I think it's a different fascination with Ted Bundy than it is with Jeffrey Dahmer, for example, or mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter. So I think that is the fascination. But on the other hand, there's a distance between these serial killers and the average person. I mean, they don't perceive themselves as being a possible victim of these individuals. Number one, because they're dead. But number two, maybe they can say, I don't fit the victim profile. So they can look at them objectively and from a distance. But with Holmes, like you said, the real horror show of this is he didn't have a victim profile. It could be any one of us at any time. You decide to go to a movie and you don't go home. It's that kind of horror almost in 2D. The whole, well, I could have been a victim of that, or my son could have been a victim of that. Okay, well, you could have been another person. You start playing with that, then you could have been the victim of anyone. So you should hate them all, right? I found like, particularly where I am now, the fascination is gone with any of serial killers, Ted Bundy or Dahmer, or just name them all. I just feel that you get to the other end of it and you're like, it's just a, a few things clicked together and they're really not that unique. They seem unique when you don't know a lot of them and you don't know a lot about them. And so you go, well, what is this mystery of a person? Then you go into it and you get to the other end and you're like sexually sadistic, necrophile, psychopath. He went after these people this time and he did it like this. There's lessons that you can pull from it. Like I find that in, actually what interests me is unsolved cases. And so how the lessons of the past can be applied to the unsolved cases. But as for, you know, wow, that person's really fascinating. Certainly there are ones that are more interesting than others. Like among mass murderers, James Holmes is one of the ones I find most interesting. It's not like I sit there and go, um, (laughs) man, you know, daily reflections on James Holmes. Like I don't admire him to the extent I wonder what it would like to be him. It's, It's always like a little mental exercise to like, okay, what if I just had no emotions? And I sort of drifted through situations like this robotic ghost and I didn't have an interest in other people. And it's almost never adding things. It's always taking things away from you. And and so the irony of this is that we see these people as complex, but I think they're not. I think that we're more complex than them, like normal, healthy people that are capable of love and to some extent pro-social and we're more complex. And so these people are fascinating in the same way a predatory animal is fascinating. A great white shark is fascinating, but not because it's complicated. It's because of everything that's missing. That's a really good point. It's an interesting way of putting it. You're right, though. They don't, I don't imagine, analyze themselves (laughs) the way that we analyze them. I mean, I think they just operate in the world like almost like mechanical. They're robotic. This is who they are. There's no complications They don't have to strive to be anybody different, do anything different, make connections, have relationships. I mean, you're right. In some ways, it's just a straight path. And and there's only two ways out, death or prison. And so, yeah, yeah, it is interesting that that's 
how they do it. And, you know, comparing them to a predator or a white shark, I think is also interesting. You're right. You just call to mind that line from seven. Did you see that one? Um, yes. Brad Pitt's in the car with John Doe. And he yeah. <laughs> says to him, he's like, you ever like sitting there covered in peanut butter, wearing your mother's panties and just you ever stop and say, it's really amazing how fucking crazy. I am. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I don't think they actually consider that. They don't like to look at themselves going, wow, I'm really different from, from the rest of the world, you know, or they, they just, do. It's like, I'm exceptional. Like everyone else would love to have sex with a severed head, but they just don't have the balls to do it. Like I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. They think we're, we're crazy. You know, like we're, yeah, it's, it's, so you're right. I mean, I guess on that level, it can be fascinating, but you know, I think it's the same, the same sort of thing. Like, you know, I've written five biker books and they're, they're not that different from each other. No. You know, the gangs operate the same, their insignia is different, their patches are different, but at the end of the day, they're really kind of the same. They're all fighting over territory and they're all in their own little microcosmic rank and file world. So it is interesting. Do you remember when you were growing up and there was like that kid in, you know, maybe around six or something, there was that kid that like picked their nose all the time and ate it and then like shit their pants all the time. Like not just once, but like constantly. That kid was fascinating. Because they're so like the, bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think what was fascinating to me is that they didn't have any filter like they not only did they not have any filters but they just were completely themselves and everyone else is always trying to be something different or hide who they really are or they have their private self and their public self and so that to me is what is fascinating about truly bizarro people is that they just mm. let it all hang out there yeah well, I guess what I'm getting at is we didn't admire that kid right <laughs> because I wonder what I'd like to be that kid or how did how did that kid achieve that? We're, it, it's almost like watching a car crash. Right. Just going, is your mother not going to tell you how to use the bathroom? Right. And, and I think it's the same kind of, you know, at least where I am now, that's how I feel with, with the serial killers. It's something similar to that. It's like, are you just going to keep stabbing women to try and achieve the perfect orgasm? Like, do you think that that's really the best result for you or anyone else. Yeah, that's interesting. We don't admire someone who overeats, but it's someone who can't stop eating. There's something fascinating about that. Like, <laughs> it's, when is it enough? Right. This <laughs> is getting out of control. So just to bring it all back, I think some of the times that people are like, oh, like you're interested in serial killers or mass murderers. Why are you interested in them? They're horrible people. You don't put them on a pedestal. It's like, no, they're not on a pedestal. In some ways, I'm sat higher than them looking down at just this strange creature just going, what the hell is that now? And I think it's in a lot of ways, maybe it's just dealing with a certain population and that's your world. You immerse yourself with these very dark people. They really don't have a lot of redeeming, any redeeming values, right? No, and so none. when I was a death penalty lawyer, my job was literally to save killers. And so I always thought that to be such an ironic thing. So here I'm writing about killers and I'm trying to save killers on the one hand. And so how do you save them? Well, you look for that kernel of redemption, you know, for me, anyway, I, I always looked for some redeeming quality, something in their past, something that turned them into that toxic cocktail that made them the killer. And if I couldn't find it, 
then I would have to ask myself, so what is it that needs to be saved about them? I was once asked this. <laughs> it's like the one question that haunted me my entire career from a Supreme Court justice. I was standing up doing an oral argument on my, one of my first death penalty cases. And the justice said, so why should we save them? <laughs> and I just like, I really was stumped. I, I was so stumped. And it was, it was one of those horrifying moments where I was standing at the podium and the time was going and I thought, oh my God, I have to come up with something. <laughs> you know, like, wow. what is it that's redeeming about this person that has just destroyed this family and murdered these children? I mean, what, what can I come up with? And I can't really tell you what I came up with because then I would give away the case. <laughs> but I came up with- Did you get a good answer? I don't think it was a good answer, but I came up with something that made me think about why I did the work that I did. And why I write about true crime, why I write about these people is I'm looking for that redemption. Like, where did they go wrong? What turned them? It's almost like a zombie. Like, what makes them turn, you know? Mm, yeah. And there were cases where I, I didn't find that. And to me, that was chilling. You know, where you get that diagnosis, antisocial personality disorder. You're like, oh, my God, there's nothing. <laughs> they weren't damaging enough when they were a kid to really stand out too much. Right. And yeah, then they were that uh, charming, disarming psychopath. Yeah. You've met quite a few psychopaths, eh? Well, I mean, they were diagnosed that way. So yeah, I think that was kind of chilling. I mean, it's probably similar to your experience dealing with serial killers. I well, I've met one. I've, I've met one serial killer who was also a psychopath. Yeah. Uh, well, that I know of. I, I met a couple of people I think are serial killers. <laughs> They're lucky to be lucky to be diagnosed. And many of them are not formally diagnosed. I don't think this guy was formally diagnosed, but I diagnosed him. Like, you know, I assessed him in my own way. And I was like, this guy is definitely a psychopath. And when I went in to see him, it was just like, he stepped right out of the book. Charming, deceitful, no empathy, no remorse for what he did, completely self-centered, grandiose. And then just going through the playbook, like, okay, if I want him to talk about this, like, then I should do this because <laughs> and and it was that was really what it was like. Charming and chilling. It's very creepy to be in the presence of them. Part of the chilling part is realizing that they're being charming, and you know that they're trying to charm you, and you know what they're like, and it's still working to some extent. And you have to take yourself aside for a little conversation. Yeah, you're right. That is to me the creepy part is that you find yourself being manipulated. They're so adept at it. They're just masters mm -hmm. at it. I call it like being exposed to psychological dark matter, you know, it's like, yeah, it's absolutely. there. And then the thought too is, okay, then there's got to be people that are completely not charming, that it's almost impossible to like, that are really good people. Right. That's almost <laughs> equally horrific because imagine being them. Right. I know. I think that's what is so fascinating about this kind of work. When we first started talking before I, I began recording, we were talking about seeing too deep, like seeing the world like this. I think I said to you that we were talking about veneer and seeing how many layers of veneer there were to everything. And I said, yeah. And underneath it, there's, there's like just a chimp. Right. And you said something like, yeah, isn't isn't it crazy seeing the world that way? And I was like, yeah. And sometimes I honestly feel it's like a bit too much to handle. I wonder yeah. if it was easier when I was maybe less cerebral about it and more naive, but it's, yeah. it's intense. It is intense. And it's really hard sometimes to decompress from that too. I find anyway, even though I'm aware of it, it's almost like once you're aware of it, you can never go backwards. Like you can never put the rose colored glasses on again and be in the world and appreciate 
some of the different layers of people. Probably the same as you. I mean, I see a very dark side of life and it's really hard sometimes to remember that there's also the light side, you know, or the comedic side or something that's going to bring some kind of relief to that because you start to look at the world or I do, I start to see people, are they all bad? Do they all have like some skeleton in the closet? You know, Are they going to turn on me? Can I trust them? You know, you can live like that, but that's kind of a sad way to live. And it's also a paranoid way to live. And I think that to some extent you have to at least trust that there's probably more good than bad in the world, but it's hard to really believe that sometimes. Yeah. So to get back to the idea of good and evil, I don't think it's good or evil. I think that there's a small minority of good people and there's a small minority of like really evil people. There's a lot of bad people. There's a lot of people that are okay too. They don't really have the brazenness for real evil and maybe they don't have the desire for it too. But if you make it easy for them, if you tweak the circumstances the right way, you put them in a position of power or they see some way to advance themselves, they'll do things that are bad or even evil if they know there's no consequence. And a lot of it is just based on fear, I think, and the need to advance, the need to advance through hierarchies and the desire to fit in. You ever been on a project with people and you're like, okay, so we're all here to build a rocket ship and maybe you end up in charge of it. I usually end up in charge. I'm trying not to be anymore. And so you start doing all this work to put it together. And then you realize that there's like the people over here that are sowing discord for no reason. And there's the people over there that are sowing discord for no reason. And there's the people that never wanted to build the rocket ship in the first place. They wanted something else. But And then you realize only two of the 10 of us really want to build this rocket ship. Everyone's here for different reasons. And then you watch the project fall apart for some reason. You go, what happened? And then you just realize it was it was because there was people in there with other agendas who couldn't shut up. That's happened a lot in my life. No, that's a really good way of putting it. I think that that's happened to me too. I, I absolutely hate the idea of uh, group projects for that mm -hmm. reason, because <laughs> there's usually only one person. And a lot of times it's me that leads it. And, and you don't right. want to, but there's something that happens anyway, where I don't know what it is, but people keep looking to you like you've got the answer and you're like, why do I have, I don't want to be the leader. I don't want to be the leader. I know how this goes. Yeah, I know that used to happen a lot in, in like teachers will do that a lot. They'll put you, okay, we're going to put you all into groups, you know, and well, you know what that means? Only one of you is doing the work, you know, the rest of you are riding the coattail. Yeah, it's really frustrating, but it's also fascinating about human nature that that, that happens. But yeah, I think it's interesting the way you put it. Like there's really, we're all in a spectrum, right? <laughs> there's going to be a really super, like the super people on one side that are the really good people. Then you've got the really bad people and you have somewhere in the middle, you know, we all fall on that spectrum. But I think when you only see the really bad people, it's really hard to remember that there's a balance, you know, there should be a balance because that becomes the world that you're in. And you start to wonder who are these people? Where did they come from? And how did they evolve into this? You know, like who were they before they were this? All right. I think that's a good spot to end it. So the book is Aurora Insights into Mass Shooters, Lessons Learned. And you're Carrie Drobin. And got to have you back in to talk about biker gangs more. I, I really appreciated the talk with you. I, I mean, we touched on the Holmes case a lot, different aspects of that. But I always enjoy the ability to kind of go off the path a little bit, explore some more fundamental human topics and ideas, and then come back to it. And I was able to do that with you. So it was a real pleasure to speak with you, Carrie. 
Thank you. Thank you. It was a really good conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Okay. Closing down the dive bar, everyone. Goodbye. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.